This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My conversation today is with the New York Times bestselling author of five books, including Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, and Newspaper Blackout. He has been a guest speaker at Pixar, Google, and TEDx. In this episode, we learn why he keeps unread books around, why he considers play to be serious business, and why the greatest gift you can give an artist is space to do their work. Coming up, Austin Kleon, a man who makes art with words and books with pictures. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery. Curse of creativity. Hey, Pat. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to have you here. Fellow Austinite, who I just discovered was geographically close. Your books have inspired me and my friends, and I did share Keep Going, the latest title that I saw, with many people over the last year and a half because they just needed a creative booster shot. Was that the impetus of writing that book? I wrote most of that in 2018. So it was a few years before the pandemic. I had sort of hit a moment of personal burnout myself. It was sort of the book I needed to read. I'm a big believer in that Toni Morrison quote where she says, if there's a gap in your bookshelf, you have to write that book to fill it. So that was a book I needed to read myself. I'm sort of a long-term pessimist. I sort of think we're all doomed in the end, but I'm a short-term optimist. And so that book was sort of crash course for myself and how to approach the day, because I feel like the day is the unit of creative time that everyone can sort of get their head around. And so I'm very focused on the day and what you can do with it. Yeah, and it's so important. Really, all you can control is what's right in front of you. And we've learned it more than ever now that take action, pick something up, do it, get it done today. Because looking at the length of a novel or a screenplay or any of that sort of stuff can be overwhelming when you also have fear of the future. What's coming? With that book, I was really... I've been going back to um, a lot of Thoreau and Emerson. I feel like the transcendentalists are sort of out of fashion right now. Like everyone kind of has fun hating on Thoreau and, and oh, his mom did his laundry and all kinds of, you know, <laughs> things like that. But reading those guys and their approach to, you know, thinking about nature and cycles I feel that a lot of the conversation about creative work is it comes from that sort of productivity world of thinking of ourselves as creatures that we can like optimize ourselves like machines. And so I really wanted to kind of go back and think more about natural rhythms to think about the day, to think about even moon cycles or just uh, the seasons or just plain old years, you know, going around the sun one time. I feel very strongly that The creative life is not linear, it's cyclical, and it's like a spiral. And I think that the more you can kind of put out of your mind that idea that it's just going to be 
progress, progress, progress forever. And you're just going to like move in a straight line and you can get to that idea of like, well, actually it's, it's just a series of cycles. You know, there's like the release cycle in, in the big picture, but then there's like the sun comes up, the, the sun goes down. If you can train yourself to think in terms of those cycles, there's more opportunity there. I, I agree. Every day, my writing is best in the morning because it's a fresh start. Yeah. And if I try to write at the end of the day too much, where I get to just a drain brain, I, I typically it doesn't make sense. And I also, I remember when I used to go skiing with my brother, he would always say, one more run, like at 4.30. And I was dead. And I was, the moguls beat me up and I'd end up in the trees. And I was like, why did I push myself to join him on that? It was the most unenjoyable thing. And the rest of the day stunk. But I do think what you're saying about seasons has always been the way that I've approached projects because there's a personal winter. Sometimes you come off of a big high of making something great, and then you're in this sort of doldrums of, ugh, can I do that again? Can I top that? Do I have anything else to say? And I think once you understand that that's part of the risk and reward of art making, it kind of makes it easier for you because you're like, hey, I need to breathe from this a little bit. If you live in a place without seasons... Like I always think of L.A. as sort of a, a, a place where people kind of talk about not having seasons. And Austin, to a certain extent, it took me a really long time to get in sync with the seasons here to figure out that there are actually seasons. It's not just hot and hotter. Once I actually like started paying attention to the seasons here, I got hooked into them. Me personally, I've, I'm what I call a great indoorsman. Like I just don't really, <laughs> I've just never been a nature guy. I mean, I grew up in the middle of a cornfield. I grew up in Southern Ohio and I had plenty of opportunity to be outside, but I just wanted to be inside on my computer or watching TV. I was just one of those kids. And now that I'm a little bit older, in particular, I'm really interested in Austin and specifically the part of Austin I live in, I sort of live close to the Shoal Creek Greenbelt in town, kind of on the west side of town. I'm really interested in how much urban wildlife there is here and how much you know nature is actually in the city. And so that's been helpful for me to kind of get in tune with, with the seasons here. A few months ago, there was a writer named Adam Grant who wrote this piece about flourishing. And Adam was talking about how a lot of people aren't flourishing right now. They're languishing. Mm -hmm. And he used this term languishing and it went really viral, you know, and everyone was passing it around. And I tend to look up words when people use them. That's like one of my writer tricks. I just look up words in the dictionary. Even if I know the word, I look it up. And so I looked up this word languishing and I think it was in the Oxford English Dictionary the example sentence at the bottom of the definition for languishing said, plants that appear to be languishing could also be dormant. And I thought, ah, oh, that's me. I'm dormant right now. <laughs> right. Like it's winter. It's not, I'm not languishing. I'm dormant. Like I'm not languishing because I'm not trying to grow right now. Like I know that this is a season that like, it's just not, I'm not going to do much. Just having that little bit of connection to nature, having nature as a metaphor for yourself it helps i'm married to a gardener and so gardening is just this rich metaphor that's completely different than a lot of the business-based industrial techie productivity type stuff that you hear about optimization and all that kind of thing so i think it's nice when you feel you're not getting the right messages from the culture to seek out other metaphors and other things to get interested in what great advice i like 
thinking about things as planting an idea farm. That's what I always say. Oh, if I plant these ideas now, they'll come to harvest down the line and I'll nurture them and I'll get to a place where they will bear fruit. (laughs) And Thoreau wrote about that. Thoreau was really good at thinking that way. You know, he was surrounded by farmers It's so funny how contemporary those guys are, even though it's been like 150 years or more. I mean, Thoreau's kind of sitting around and and people think of him as an idler. He's looking around at these farmers and they're like, what's this lazy bum doing? He's just sitting, taking walks and writing all day. But Thoreau's like, no, this is my planting. This is my sowing. This is my work. Like I'm sowing ideas into these manuscript pages. And he talks about that. He's like, you can't have a harvest of thought without a seed time. Awesome. You know, so it's just like, so all these beautiful, beautiful metaphors that we miss out on in in the modern kind of urban world. (laughs) Well, the other thing he talks about, particularly in Walden, is about solitude. Solitude is not necessarily being lonely or being, there's a quieting of the mind where you can discover. I think that we're bombarded by texts and internet and quick responses And we don't get to imagine and we don't get to just allow things to sort of get clear. So that's one of the other things that in a recent read of Wald and I was really taken with all of the solitude. Yeah, I think you're dead on. And I think that one of the reasons people don't like Thoreau is that his disciples sort of get things kind of weird and wrong. Like, I think a lot of people think that Thoreau is about going to live in the woods, like into the wild or going out into the wilderness or whatever. That's not what I take from him at all. My feeling about Thoreau is, you know, the two things I took from him as a writer is you should go on a walk every day. And then when you get back from your walk, you should write about what you thought about on your walk. (laughs) That to me fundamentally is what he was doing all day. So many of the creative folks I've talked to talk about that power of the walk or the power of exercise or things that where your subconscious takes over. It is important to be in a passive place to allow that work to come forward. Yeah, and I think what you just said, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. My work is I don't scour psychology journals or human behavior (laughs) reporting. I'm not a pop scientist writer. Like I look for testimonials from my fellow creators, from my fellow writers and artists and real people. And then I use my own experience to write my stuff. So I'm sort of always looking for those testimonials from other people who are making things rather than, oh, we ran this study uh, (laughs) in this lab and gave people this creativity test and we found this. It's like, who are you going to believe? Tolstoy talking about boredom or are you going to believe what these psychologists found out in the lab about boredom? That's the kind of tension I find in, in the culture right now a lot is this idea that, well, let's listen to the real experts versus the people that are actually doing the work that we love that we want to emulate with our own. I'm sure I've mentioned this to somebody along the way, but Anne Lamott has this great thing in Bird by Bird where she talks about the critics are people who walk onto the battlefield after the war and judge the wounded. And they're just not in the war. It's one thing to be a critic and step onto the battlefield. It's also another thing to host a battle simulation somewhere in a room. (laughs) 
right. <laughs> and try to extrapolate, you know, some kind of insight from it, you know, because right. that's sort of what we have. When people talk to me now, I don't consider myself a creativity expert. I consider myself a writer and an artist who is just trying to do interesting work. And my books are really the byproducts of a process of trying to figure out how this stuff is done. I, I was never really interested in trying to put together a grand theory of creativity with my books. I was just interested in, you know, I came from a small town. I didn't know a lot of writers or artists when I was growing up or creative people. And I just literally wanted to know, like, what does an artist do? That was really the heart of my books. It was like, well, how do you live your life like an artist? Like, do, what do you do all day? I love that Richard <laughs> Scarry book. What do people do all day? That's my, I have two kids, so I've read a lot of Richard Scarry. And I think that that question, what do people do all day? That's always been the kind of heart of my inquiry. Cause I want to know, like, how do you just, how do you do this stuff? I was a touring comedian and did one-man shows in the theater, which is a bit of a lonely life in a way. Sure. If you don't find a way to create a day and a night or a week where you can enjoy that. So what's interesting is I got a call from someone else who had been on the road and, and I didn't know him, but he knew he would see my names in theater brochures. And he called me and he basically said, what do you do all day? Like he didn't even know what to do when he wasn't doing the show. And it just made me laugh. And I said, well, pick up the newspaper, do your laundry. Like I had made a list of normal things. I said, the world is full of stories and you just have to turn and look at them. And the reception is that you're living in anticipation of something happening. It's like butterfly catching. You just grab the idea and play with it or study it or release it once you find what you need. So if somebody doesn't know how to entertain themselves for a day, it's awkward. I, I know you're a big proponent of reading. To be a good writer, you need to read. And and I know that you recently started a book club or a curated book advising thing. Can you tell me a little bit about the power of reading for writers? Probably my whole impulse to be a writer came from being a reader first. I basically became a professional writer so I could be a professional reader. <laughs> you know, I kind of get paid to sit around and read now, but it's only because I write these books that pay for the reading. <laughs> you know? So it's, it all kind of works together. It hit me very early on when I wanted to be a writer. You could join this world of writing and books. You could join it immediately at whatever point you were at. So I just knew in the beginning, I'm not good enough to have a book. I'm not good enough to share my own work yet. But what I could do is maybe I could share the things I love or be of some sort of service in another way. And so when I started my blog in 2005, one of the things I would do is I was living in Cleveland at the time. That's where my wife is from. Anytime a writer would come to town, we would go and I would draw them because I was thinking, you know, people take pictures a lot, but not a lot of people draw at reading. So I started drawing people and then I would go home. I take some notes and then I go home and sort of like type up the event. It was almost like journalism or something. You know, I was drawing a picture of the person and then I would type up on my blog what they said or anything interesting I gleaned. I met more writers that way. It was incredible because everyone has a Google alert on their name <laughs> and everyone loves being drawn. This idea that you would go to a reading and draw someone that was reading, that was just kind of like, who does that? <laughs> and so I met some really interesting people that helped me along just by doing that, by saying, you know what? I don't need to be on stage yet. 
let me reflect who's on stage, you know? And so that really shaped me at an early age. And now that I'm someone who people listens to all the time, I'm still trying to pull in that fandom or, or not even fandom just as an audience member or a participant or a lover. I really like thinking of it in just terms of readership. I love to bring in my life as a reader into my sort of everyday interaction with my audience. So the book club that you mentioned, there's a startup in Austin called Literati, and they came to me and asked me, would you like to do a book club? It's only been about two or three months that at the time that we're talking <laughs> of doing this, but it has been really fun because this is basically stuff I've been doing all along, sharing my favorite books, writing about them, putting them in my newsletter. It's very formalized now. I get to pick a book for a specific time of the year that I know when people are going to read it. And then the literati folks, they actually package up the book and they put little materials in there and it like goes to people's doorsteps. It's so cool. It really is a cool thing. It's really fun. And then everyone posts when they get their books. You see the photos and I get the books too. So I do videos when I get the box. It's been really, really fun. In a weird way, I just wanted to be part of the world of books. Of course, I want to be a famous writer. Of course, you want to have your name on the cover. But the older I get, the more I'm like, I just want to be part of this world. And that's what's so valuable to me now. Well, you're such a tremendous amplifier of other people's work. And while you call it stealing like an artist, the quotes that you share, the pages in your book, while you don't want to be the captain of the creative softball team, I do think that you're a good coach in that you point to the direction of first base. You tell people, hey, reading this book's a good idea. It filled part of my life. And there's nothing better than a curation. I guess I have a question for you. Are there books that you see in stores or at garage sales or anything that you want to save, meaning a title you've read and you see it and you go, I got to buy that right now? Because I have some that I buy every time I see them because I know I'll give them to somebody or something. Bill Bryson wrote a book called The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid. It's a memoir. Okay. And he was from Iowa. He's written so many great books. A lot of books, yeah. So, so many great books. He's an excellent writer. But that one, there's just something so authentic about every part of his life. And I just identify with the nostalgia and the conflict and the growth. So I kind of feel like, what's this doing here? This should be in somebody's hands. I just buy it and give it away. Yeah, gosh. You know, I have to admit, as much as I share books, I don't foist books on people very often. And I guess that's just because I have such an expression online. Yeah. I don't feel the need to do it in person. But reading is such a personal thing to me, and I think it should be self-directed mm. so much that I don't really foist books on like, oh, you have to read this. The other thing that I do is I believe deeply that it's important to have books around that you haven't read. I feel very much that having a personal library of books that you haven't read around, it's incredibly important for me. A lot of times when you come across a book, it's just not the right time for you yet. When I keep things that I suspect might be for me, I buy them and I keep them around. And then something happens in my life or I'm, you know, pulling some thread at some point and then the book's there for me. Unread books around are a feature, not a bug in my life. You know, people were people say all the time, oh, I got this big stack of books I haven't read. And it's like, 
Yeah, dude, that's what they're for. Put them on the shelf. They look great and they're there for you when when you need them. I feel as readers and as human beings really alive today, it's so hard to keep track of your own interests. It's so hard to stay curious and open to what other people are recommending, but to also be protective of your interests and your attention and to be focused on what you're working on at the moment, because I'm very distractible. I'm curious about everything. If people start talking about something, I'll just drop what I'm doing, get interested in that thing. You know, <laughs> right. it's really hard for me to keep my own interests. Think about when you used to go on the Internet. You didn't just open the Internet and the Internet started speaking at you. In the early days, I remember like getting on my dad's computer at the office and you'd like, have to pull up Yahoo or something. I don't know. Google wasn't even around. You have to like type something into the box. I want to Green Day lyrics or. And then you, <laughs> like, you would have to well, wait for that bing bong bing ding ding yeah. ding. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd have to pull it up. It was like a catalog. And then you'd start clicking around and it was more like clicking. And that's why they called it surfing, you know, because you were sort of finding a wave and grabbing it and then finding another wave or another link. There's lots of different metaphors people use for the web. Now today, I, I just feel like especially people a little bit younger than me, they don't get how fundamentally different the web is now. Because now when you go on the web, you know, maybe you look at Twitter on your phone or something, instantly there's thousands of people telling you what to think about. And so all day I'm sort of like balancing this urge to stay true to my own interests and what I'm trying to work on versus being open to the world and the serendipity of things floating in. So one of the th tricks I have like for Twitter is I call it the search versus the feed. It used to be the internet was about searching, searching for your people, looking for your stuff, trying to find your niche or whatever. And today it's the feed. It's like you show up at the trough and the feed just comes through, you know? <laughs> and so I try to figure out how can I change the feed into the search? So one of the things I'll do is when I sign on to Twitter, I will type in whatever I'm interested in into the search box, and then I'll limit it to people I follow. I wonder who I know that's talked about Tolstoy before. So I literally typed Tolstoy into the box and, and limited it to people I follow. And I found all this really interesting stuff, you know, that I wouldn't have found if I was just kind of like taking in the, the feed. So I'm always like trying to balance that search versus the feed, that direction, self-directedness versus serendipity. As a creative person, I'm always trying to unite those two things or balance them. I think balance and focus are critical to survival these days. But I look at you and from your work, I consider you to be a subtractionist. You are always removing unwanted words in your redacted poetry. Essentially, I looked at that work in the book and I thought, this guy's a poetry miner, meaning you're sifting through articles and you're panning for words. Oh, I like that. No, I am a minor poet, but I am a minor. You're right. M-I-N-E-R. While you say that you're borrowing from people, or I, I think in a way... All these poems were written in articles, and your editor, you're finding the poem right. in the chaos of a news article. I have a subtractive mind. I like to chip away to try to get it at the gem, to extract that or dive per for pearls, whatever metaphor you want to use. I do like the mining metaphor because there's a side getting down into the bedrock, drilling down. I like to keep 
getting down there, you know, because there's a sense that if you just go down a few more layers, you're going to find the real nugget. I feel like this is a culture that kind of skims things, skim whatever's on the top of the surface. If you just get your shovel out, you know, and you just dig down just a little bit deeper than everyone else, you just get to the stuff that's really going to help you. I think somehow people think that I don't value originality because of what I've written. And I always feel very misunderstood that way. I like things that approach originality, but I just don't think it's obtained the way people think it is. I think it's obtained through the work of others. It's obtained through influence and study. I feel like that's how you become original, by having a very broad or deep or, or various amount of influences and digging into that stuff and rearranging it, I feel like that's the way you become original, not by just siloing yourself off and reaching deep down into your soul, you know, although that can happen too. You probably know the photography of Ansel Adams, and he talked about you don't make photography with a camera. You bring to the act of photography the process. It's everything. It's the pictures you've taken before. It's the yeah. books you've read. It's the music you've heard. It's the people that you loved. All of that is captured in that moment. Yes. It's, it's like being a bow hunter. You you just wait for that moment in time yeah. where capturing that picture is encompasses where you're at. Yeah. Goethe said that. He was like, you know, when I sit down to write, I'm thousands of people I've met. I'm just everything. I'm the thousands of things I've come across. I'm the thousands of people I've met. Creative work is really a calling. You know, that's something I haven't necessarily said out loud before, but it's your whole life. It's everything. You know, my wife's always telling me this. I always feel like a fundamentally lazy person. I don't really want to work. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not really, I don't want to work. But my wife says, but Austin, you never quit. You do this all day from the minute you wake up till the minute you go to sleep. You're just, you're working. It's on all the time. And I think this is something that people struggle with who are artists or creative people is like, there's just no real uh, life and work and love and all that stuff is just a big stew pot. There's no real edges to it. And that's something I've had to accept and lean into and leverage. There are times when it doesn't look like I'm doing very much. And those are some of the richest times. Well, you mentioned it, the phrase creative calling. I want to step back when you were younger. And when did you discover that the compass was pointed towards creativity as true north? I think I'm just one of those kids that never lost it. I mean, I think a lot of kids are, they're making stuff, they're really creative, but I think I'm just somebody who just never stopped. I think a lot of kids stop at a certain age, they get interested in other things. My mom or my dad might have a different story, but I'm just, I can't remember a time I wasn't interested in making things and just watching movies and reading books and playing music. And I just always, that's what I wanted to do. I grew up in rural America, so it's like, you know, there weren't a lot of people who wanted to do those things. Was it also a form of escape in that you were able to create your world that was more interesting to you? Yes. I'm always interested in, these guys are older than me, but like someone like Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails or Jim Jarmusch, the filmmaker, they grew up in Ohio and Tom Waits has a great, <laughs> I'll try to do a Tom Waits impression. Oh, but... Go for it. He's like, well, you know, uh, Jim grew up in Ohio, and it's very flat there, so you learn to dream. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the kind of, I, I, you know, so I, I give that an A plus. 
Thank you. So I feel that way. You know, I when you're you're in the corn, the indoors for me was a place that you could dream. That was the place that you could sort of daydream. And I was very, very lucky growing up. I'm my mom's only child. I have siblings, but they're older than me. I was always given like a big room to play in. And I always had a room for all my stuff. And and after my parents divorced, it was just me and my mom in a big house. And I just had a ton of space always when I was a kid. So I had my drafting table and my drum set and my piano and all the stuff. So I've always had a space. And I think that now that I have kids, that is really what I'm focused on with them is, you know, we live in a bungalow in, in Austin, so there's not a lot of space, but there's space. I'm less interested in directing my kids than giving them a space for them to become themselves, because I think that is really the, the greatest gift that, that people can give a creative person is just the space to do their work, mental, physical, schedule-wise. Yeah, I think it's important. I remember John Cleese writing something about the importance of space, the importance of time, devoting to an idea. It doesn't really matter what the space is. It's just that if you get to go there by choice, instead of being put in a room with fluorescent lights and meant to come out with something, like that's literally the difference between work and play. I think play is just the word that I cannot hear enough, honestly, when it comes to creative work. And when you spend some time with kids, you realize that play is serious business, that when kids play, they are incredibly serious and they're, that is their work. So I think play is the work of the child and I think it's the work of the artist. But there is that kind of, I think it's Heisinga or one of the theorists who talks about the magic circle of play, that when children play, there is a magic circle. There's kind of a world that they exist in that has its own rules and things like that. And I, I do think that whether you call it a bliss station or your studio or your office or whatever, if you can create some sort of magic circle in your life that you step into, and when you step into that circle, it's playtime. I think the creative people who can do that, it's probably like getting on stage you know, when you do stand up, that's the magic circle. In a weird way, there's many places that it appears for me. In the rehearsal process, I always encourage the actors. I don't tell them where to go as a director. It's called a play. So let's discover it together. You bring to the party what you want to do and let's see. You know, ultimately, some of it's going to be organized and constructed yeah. to be successful every night. But in the journey, to me, even in writing the original content, that's a moment of play where there's no rules. Nobody is my boss and I do have to learn to have the discipline to be self-directed and to sit on my ass and get it done. When I do get into that flow state, I'm like, wait a minute, this is really a good time. It's just getting into that sometimes. You have to get the obstacles out of the way. I think the magic circle for me sometimes is the page or the notebook. It's when you open the notebook and it's flat on the desk, then it's like, well, what can happen here? You know, so that's definitely yeah. a stage for me. I'm always interested to talk to comedians and stand-ups because I would never attempt stand-up myself, but I have been so formed by stand-up, you know, when I give my talks and when I speak, I'm always looking for tricks. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's, what are you most curious about? 
I'm curious with setup and punchlines and how you get the audience ready for something. I'm interested in repetition, how they call back to things and repeat lines. And I'm always interested in structure because I'm a structure junkie. And then I'm interested in just reaction and improvisation, taking the energy of the audience and doing something with it. There's a whole host of things I'm interested with in stand-up. What strikes me about stand-up is just how much you have to bomb and <laughs> how much you have to try things out on stage. And I've been very interested in comedians today who have talked about how that kind of environment is disappearing with cell phones and recording devices. Uh. And I think some comedians now, they have a no cell phone policy. They do. They even have a thing where they'll lock up people's yeah. <laughs> cell phones in a bag. Yeah. You know, like it's kryptonite and you can't get it till after the show. Yeah. But, you know, I would say growing up, like some of my biggest heroes were people like George Carlin or Richard Pryor. Those were my philosophers when I was growing up. I still remember falling asleep to Carlin CDs with my best friend, you know, when we'd have sleepovers and he's still kind of a, he had such a mind for collecting and devouring the culture and staying attentive, you know, some of the ways he wrote about writing. And I've always been interested in comedians who talk about writing some, you know, I'm interested in people who write their own material and that, that kind of thing, but I'm interested in, pretty much all art forms. So yeah. number one, I could see your attraction to Carlin because he played with words at, like it was foreplay. He would tee it all up and get it, people all excited and really bring out words that were eclectic and that he could use in more than one way. It was very much musical in a way, the way he wrote. Uh, it was very, very important to the structure of that. But I'll answer some of those other things in a quick sort of a flurry. Please do. Because one thing I can tell you <laughs> is truth is the ultimate setup. To be able to tell a story from a truthful start or place is really valuable, and it doesn't have to be hilarious because what comes in comic is the twist, that what happened that makes this flip, that makes the surprise, which sort of brings the laughter out, like, oh, I didn't expect that. And comedians do that time and time again without audiences realizing and so what happens is they sort of draw them in with, you ever see this thing at the grocery store? This is the grocery store. Yeah, I had one of those in my head. They're like, oh, I'm on the team. I'm with everybody. And then they flip it in a way that people are like, oh, I never saw it that way. And they, they just catch themselves in kind of this giddy place of realization. And I'm not yeah. saying that every comic does it, but that importance of that surprise or that twist is almost what makes the punchline funnier. Then you mentioned the callback, and what's funny is when you have a funny punchline that has already tickled the ribs in some place, if you're able to, five jokes later or at the end of the set, if you're able to reference that in a different way, and people go, wait a minute, you did it to me again, it almost the callback's funnier than the original. Here's what, here's an interesting thing. I took a ride in a with a guy in a car that was, I would call, humorless, and partly was... He was very logical. His world was building bridges and infrastructure. He did this, everything has to make sense or the bridge doesn't stay up. He's driving and he was talking to me about the show, The Producers. He took his wife to The Producers and he said, is that funny? I go, what do you mean, is it funny? Yeah, people, he goes, well, I saw everybody laughing and they were having a good time. So I assumed, but, but why is it funny? And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And he literally needed to know, he needed the plans. He's like, 
how do you write a joke? <laughs> he just couldn't wrap his head around it. And I thought, well, this is going to be some, this is a heavy lift because there are so many nuances to humor. There are often tricks. There are words that are funnier than other words. There are hard K sound is funny. Things yeah. set up in threes are funny. Like all of that has right. some merit, but yes. you can't really write a joke that way. It's impossible. So it's not the sum of the parts that make the joke. The other thing that I forgot to mention about stand-up and comedy that that attracts me is I fundamentally think that my view of the world is comedic. I think a lot of people who make art have a tragic vision of how creativity is supposed to work. So if you think of a classical tragedy, it's someone great or special who tries to bend the world to their own vision. So that's like the painter in his studio, just like they will, one day they'll understand, you know, I'm <laughs> going to make them see. And then at the end, it's always ends in blood, you, you know, because there's some flaw or, or it's fatal trying to kick the world, break your foot type of thing. The comedy is completely different. It's people who are ordinary who find themselves in trouble and then they survive through their sort of wits and they're improvisational. And at the end, there's a wedding. <laughs> there's a celebration. I read this wonderful book. It's very hard to find. It's out of print and it's very out there, but it's called The Comedy of Survival. And it's by a guy named Joseph Meeker, who's also an environmental studies guy. And what he does in that book is a literally present a vision of life in which comedy is the structure by which human civilization can can thrive. He says it's really comedy and not tragedy. We we celebrate tragic figures in our culture. But our only real chance at survival is to take this playful, comedic, improvisational attitude and, and way of operating towards life. And so I think for me, it's like that has been the biggest twist in my creative life has been not only not trying to be funny, because I think that fails a lot if you try to be funny, especially with the kind of work that I do, but not saying no to humor. And not saying no to comedy and to fundamentally, I think for me, comedy is just, that is how I'm wired. And I don't mean like a funny ha, -ha. I mean, I love jokes. I love to be light. But that sense of improvisation, that sense of regular survival, that improv, that playfulness, that tricksterishness, right. that to me is really, that's how I like to operate. Well, it means that you're letting the light in. Sometimes yes. people shutter things out because yes. they don't want to expose themselves to it. But I, I really do yeah. think that, well, there's a reference from old Reader's Digest about uh, laughter being the best medicine. I really do think that it impacts the stress and yeah. the wear and tear and even in your worst conflict or challenge or tragedy, and, and I have many friends that have suffered some medical things, their attitude about it and how they faced it was with courage and with humor. Those things made the difference in the journey for them. I mean, I can't say enough about that. I, I know that you refer to yourself as, as a stealing like an artist and a creative kleptomaniac and so forth. What really interests me is what is your next great heist? That's a great question. I'm trying to figure that out right now. I'm casing the joint. <laughs> it's like the part of the heist movie where you're... Actually, I, I like that metaphor. 
I've never thought of it that way, but heist movies, you know, you always get the gang together at the beginning. Usually the guy has an idea for a heist. You know, there's some Marine leader that has the idea, but then he has to assemble the team. You're plotting, right? So it's like Mission Impossible. Yeah. You need a guy that can drop into the room on a wire, but not touch the floor. You're going to yeah. need all of those. Uh, and, and maybe you can use that to first speak of the collaborative process and the importance of collaboration. Then we can talk about whether there's a, what the payday is. What bank are you going to blow? My team is pretty small. It's basically me and then my wife is my first reader. I have my agent. Really, then it's my readership. It's what people send me. It's how people respond to the last work. I read a thing Joni Mitchell said one time about her records where she said, whatever was lacking in the last album, I try to do that in the next one. So I sort of sometimes try to think about like, where did I fail in the last book? Or not even where I failed, but like, what did I not address? What did I not get to? Or was there a seed in that book that could be grown for the next one? I guess my great heist right now is to try to figure out how being home with my kids, what kind of lessons you can juice out of those uh, experiences that people who don't even have kids might be interested in. That's a real hard thing. I don't really want to write a parenting book. But I want to somehow share with people just the wonderfulness of being around a four-year-old, in a sense, just this kind of playful, open, pure, creative force. Yeah, that's a great word. Pure is a great word because my sons are now older, but when they were little, I can't tell you the amount of days that they were the impetus of the greatest idea of the day for me that would either become stand-up or go into yeah. a play. or And sometimes it was just yeah. curiosity. It was just them looking up at the clouds and asking a question. Or I remember driving one to school around kindergarten and he was looking out the window and he's just fascinated looking out the window. I go, what are you looking at? He goes, I just have a question. He said, I think I know where litter comes from. And I go, what do you mean where litter comes from? And he said, well, it must have been the cavemen. And I go, why the cavemen? He goes, well, they didn't have trash cans back then. And so this is all left over. And you know, I said, oh, but they had Budweiser cans and cigarette But that's and- the beginning of something right there. You could take that and say, okay, cavemen, litter, trash. It's so funny, though, that he had somehow in his narrative determined that if there were trash cans, there wouldn't have been any litter from then on. I haven't talked a lot about misunderstanding and mistakes in my work as much as I would like to have. Because it's amazing how many sort of creative moments happen because of mistakes or misunderstandings. This happens a lot in songwriting. I remember, I think it's Stevie Nicks was talking to Tom Petty's wife one time and said, when would you meet Tom or something? And she said, oh, at the age of 17. And Stevie Nicks thought she said edge because of her accent. And she's like, edge of 17. And then she wrote the song. You know, so it's just like mishearing things, misunderstanding things. These are the sort of mutations in life. It's the human equipment that doesn't get things right that makes the innovation or the next step or the insight happen. So I'm interested in that too, just how being wrong can be right. Yeah, I think the discovery process is a little bit about not judging everything so much, seeing its value, repurposing something that might surprise you is instead of saying, oh, that's wrong, I got to start over. You say, what is it? What's that shining a light on? Victor Hugo, and again, I'm only saying a quote because I know you love quotes, but he said, stronger than any army is an idea whose time has come. And that moment 
when an idea strikes you, that's the reason why the heist isn't solid yet. The idea isn't saying we have to get the money by Friday at this time or they're going to put a new alarm system in. Yeah, that's totally it. It's like Emerson said, genius is when our forgotten thoughts come back to us with an alienated majesty or whatever it was. That idea that things come and they, you just have to be ready to go. It's hard to will it. Being prepared to go with it is almost more, and that's that's showing up to your desk every day. That's having a notebook in your pocket, being ready to receive things. You mentioned earlier this idea of you receive what you're ready to receive, which is what Thoreau said. So to be ready to be in a state of readiness, to be casing the joint, you know, right. to be looking around. When opportunity knocks, you don't want to be in the backyard looking for four-leaf clovers. It's true. It's yes. Which some people will let it all get away from them because they're so focused on something else that they can't, they're just not ready to go. Yeah. Let me encourage, because we're coming to the end of an hour here, and I, I really respect your time and know that you have planning to do with getting the rope ready and all of the things True. that you're going to need to break in there, the the glass, you've got to call your safe cracker. But I would say that one of the ways that your the, our listeners and your readers can be on the team is by reading your blog. I, there was a great idea today about a waterproof notebook poolside that you draw cartoons in. There's all kinds of gems in there, but also subscribing to your regular newsletter and checking out your website, which is just your name, right? Austin Cleon. That's right. K-L-E-O-N.com. You'll find all kinds of resources and inspiration. So the nature of your sharing brings more bounty into your world. Thank you. I mean, I have found that when you share things, when you put your work and your ideas out into the world, it's, it's what Christopher Hitchens called a free education that goes on for a lifetime. I really believe that. And I, the more I share, the more I get back. It's always been my kind of artistic ethos. Well, I promise I won't foist a book on you because <laughs> I, but I might refer one so that you can choose it if you wish. But I do like to send books as thank yous because I feel like there's so much fun information in the world and that many times just people haven't stumbled across it. Great. I look forward to it. <laughs> All right. Austin, thanks so much for investing your time with us. Thank you, Pat. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Call the crew.